Good morning. morning. Go ahead, take out your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark. Uh, We're going to be finishing up Mark chapter 8, and today actually kind of hits where we are halfway through the book of Mark. Um, So if you've been with us for the last six months, about six months ago, we started uh, walking through, which is typically what we do here at Redemption Hill Church, walking through a book of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We want to hear all of God's word and what it has to say, how it applies to us and affects us today. Uh, So we're halfway through the book of Mark. So we're in Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 22. In just a moment, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, and so in the lobby at the Next Steps table outside, there are stacks of Bibles. You can take one of those. That's our free gift to you. We want everybody to have God's Word. Um, as we start this morning, uh, I was reading through, uh, there's a Puritan collection of prayers. It's put together in a book called The Valley of Vision. Uh, a very, very powerful book of prayers. Uh, I would recommend it to any and everyone. One of the prayers says this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou has brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is up, that to be low is to be high, that to be broken hearted is to be a healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in thy valley. This text in Mark chapter 8 gives us this beautiful glimpse at what this prayer is describing. This reality that, that there is this upside downness to the kingdom of God. And, and for us, when we feel like things are right side up and we naturally live in the world that we were created to live in, to give glory to God and have joy in him, but though have walked away in rebellion to God, not seeking to give glory to God, but seeking to find self in the things of the world, then we pursue life and satisfaction and joy and purpose and meaning and our place and identity in the things of the world, trying to build up what we do not have. But in reality, we were created to find everything that we long for in God and in God alone. It's his kingdom that comes down and it flips everything upside down. It's no longer do I have to achieve to become, but God has done everything for me to have the life that I was created to have. It's in surrender to him that we actually find power. It's in laying our life down that we actually find the life that we were created to have. It's in serving that we find joy. See, this is what we find in the gospel truth. This is what the book of Mark has been pointing out to us and laying out over the last eight chapters that we might have an understanding of who we are and who we are created to be because of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do for us. And then surrendering to him and surrendering to him alone, do we have the life that we were created to have and the life that we long for? 
We talked last week about how there's all of these passions and desires that we have for unseen things that do not exist in the world. And that's because we were not made to have our satisfaction in the things of the world. But we were made to have our satisfaction in Christ and him alone. So it's not about our religious activity as we saw last week. It's not about what we can do and what we accomplish. It's not about our own morality and structure of life that we place ourselves in and being willing to lay down other things and pleasures so that we can live in a certain way. That's not what brings us life and joy. But it's also not just irreligiously seeking pleasures of the heart, just pursuing every passion and desire that we can think of in the moment. This gives us the appearance of freedom, but ultimately it leaves us enslaved to the things of the world. Neither one of these are what we were created to pursue life in, irreligion or religion or activity or, or just the feeling of freedom and doing whatever it is that we long to do. Jesus calls these ideas the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, the leaven of religion and the leaven of irreligion. These things that creep into our life that that begin to tell us just pursue life in and of yourself or put some sort of structure over yourself so that you can accomplish the life that you long for. So it's somehow kind of find your way into it by following passions and desires or somehow find your way into this salvation that you long for and were created for, but can only find in God in doing something and achieving something. And Jesus says, neither of these will satisfy you. Both of them are actually self-centered. Both of them fall extremely short of saving faith in the life that you were created for and long to have. Both lead to confusion. Both lead to frustration. Both lead to self-righteousness. Both lead to oppressing others. Both lead to fear. Both lead to worry. Both lead to emptiness. But Jesus comes. And Jesus lives the life that we couldn't live. He pays the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross. He rises from the grave so that we might be brought back into community with God. So that we might be back in the relationship that we were created to have. That we find our identity and purpose in. And see, Jesus was not just a religious leader or a good advice giver telling us what to do to get to God. But he actually comes and does what is required for us. This is the hope that we have. Not will I ever do enough, or will I work hard enough, or will I be consistent enough, or will I love enough, will I be uh, true to myself enough, will I meet the needs of others enough, will I be affirming enough? No, our hope is not in us. It's in the fact that he has done enough on our behalf. And what we've been seeing through the book of Mark is that Jesus is the true bread of life. He's everything that we long for and were created for. And when we get into Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22, we begin to see how Jesus is going to actually accomplish this for us. There's the turning point in the gospel of Mark. How do we receive who Jesus is and what he's come to do? How do we understand who he is and what he's come to do? So this is the hinge point for the book of Mark. There's a shift point. Everything to this point has been pointing towards who Jesus is. Everything after this point points towards what Jesus has come to do. And this is what we need to understand this morning. This is what Jesus is teaching the disciples and all who are around him. And he does so in true Jesus-like fashion. He, he does something that we would not consider something we would expect. And he's going to show us this through performing a miracle. But this miracle is not just going to be a physical act that points towards the truth of who he is. It, it actually serves as both a miracle 
in a parable. So this is what we have in this text. Look with me, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. It says, And they, so talking about Jesus and the disciples, come to, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Peter went on with, and Jesus went on with the disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ or the Messiah. And he strictly, Jesus, charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And many believe in that first verse of chapter 9 that we'll actually see what Jesus is talking about there next week as we continue on in the book of Mark. But as we read this text, we, we see in those first couple of verses, if you look all the way back to verse 22, uh, how all of this begins to work together. We have this miracle that Jesus performs, but it's a little different than any miracle that we've seen before. And it's going to serve as this parable to lay out All of the truths that Jesus points out. And this is such a powerful passage that we have to walk through really quickly together this morning. We could honestly probably spend an entire week on each one of these verses. That's how power-packed it really is. Uh, So we'll go through quickly, but what I want us to see is the main overarching story of what's happening in this beautiful miracle that Jesus performs that begins to lay out the truth for the disciples and us of everything else he says in this text. Who is he? And what has he come to do? These two questions that Mark answers for us that we've been asking throughout our entire study in this book. So when you go back to verse 22 and you look at those first couple of verses, we realize something right off the bat. And this is the first thing that kind of hits my mind when I read this. This is the only miracle that we see in the Gospels where it looks like Jesus has the intent to heal someone and it doesn't work. 
And, and, and so you have this moment, and the disciples would be seeing this, the man would be feeling this, we're reading this, and because we have the, the privilege and grace of being able to kind of see the whole story, a lot of times things that are happening in the text kind of just go right over our heads because we can't put ourselves in that place. Uh, because we have this amazing opportunity to kind of read all of scripture and to understand the history of everything that is taking place. And we have this knowledge of who Jesus is and the cross and the resurrection and, and everything that God has done in our lives through the lens of, of the past of what he has done. But when we read this text, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't even yet explained that he will go to the cross or rise from the dead, which he will three times in the remaining book, uh, chapters of the book of Mark. But when the disciples are seeing this, when this man is experiencing this, when the friends or the people that bring this man to Jesus and ask Jesus to touch him experience this, it looks like, okay, we're bringing you to Jesus who has this ability. We've heard of these things. We've seen him do these things. We've heard him speak with this authority. He's teaching this truth. He's revealing it through these miracles and the supernatural ability. And so we need to bring this person to Jesus because Jesus can heal. And then Jesus touches him and says, can you see anything? And he goes, ah, like kind of. And it just seems so out of place. But what we see here is very important for a couple of reasons. One, it shows us just the realness and the honesty of Scripture. If you're just trying to, and this is just a quick kind of bypassing thing that I'll say, but if you're just trying to create some sort of pedestal for some sort of man that people might worship down the road as a God and create some sort of world religion, this kind of story doesn't make it. Where it looks like Jesus tries to do something and doesn't have the power to do it. So the Bible is just completely open and completely honest. But then the other thing that this shows us is there must be a reason that Jesus is doing this. And I love how when you look through scripture and the miracles that Jesus performs in the gospels, every single one of them is performed just a little bit different. And this reveals to us that Jesus has complete control and complete power over anything and everything that we might face on earth and any situation on earth. There's no situation where Jesus can't bring healing power into. There's, there's nothing that you might face in this world or no circumstance you might find yourself in where if you came to Jesus, he would have to say, well, if you can kind of get yourself in this situation or you can kind of get to this point or maybe do these sorts of things so you can get to this level, uh, become a better person and then I can save you or then I can heal you. Like none of that ever happens with Jesus. And we don't see in any place in scripture where the circumstances have to be right. Jesus has to say or do the right things. He doesn't even uh, heal in the right way. Sometimes he heals from a f- in the same way. Sometimes he heals from afar. Sometimes he touches. Sometimes he just speaks it. All of the situations are different. And we see from that he is in complete, complete control. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, he is in control of it, he is good, and he is able. He is able to heal in whatever way is required because he is sovereign, powerful, and good. He is always working to bring about his good plan. But it also shows us that there are multiple things happening in every miracle that Jesus performs. 
I love how John Piper says it. He says that Jesus is always working in a thousand different ways, even when we can only see one of them. And I would add to that that not only is he working in a thousand different ways right now, but, but he is also working in this way that, that reveals something both spiritually and physically in our lives in a thousand different ways, even if we only see one application. And so maybe sometimes we see one physical thing God is doing or that he has brought us through, but he is also applying it to our lives in, in more ways than we can even count. He is able in any situation. He is always working. Maybe we don't see it. Maybe sometimes we see a few things that God is doing, but he is always working about his good plan. He is always teaching through his miraculous works, and he is always revealing who he is to us in his miraculous works. And so Jesus and the disciples, they enter into Bethsaida once more. They've been here before. And it says, some people brought to Jesus a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. Now, as I said, we can get a whole sermon out of this, and I'm going to have to try really, really hard to not hang out on the blind man the whole time. You're going to feel like I'm getting really close to the end, and then I'm probably going to apologize and say, i got to sum up the rest of these verses like happens every single week. Um, And we should just go a whole lot slower, um, and we would do that, just letting you guys in. Probably shouldn't even say these things, but we have people lined up, guest speakers to come that already have the text in the book of Mark, so I've got to get through it. Um, But what we could spend the entirety of the time here This is incredible what Jesus is doing. But I want us to see just kind of the the overarching picture of what's happening here. And and we've talked about this with with those who have disabilities in the scripture. Jesus has already healed the deaf and the lame in the book of Mark. And we've talked about this, but it's, it's good for us to remember that someone who is blind in this culture in the first century in this place would be seen as a complete outcast. Uh, Both physically, in relationships, they would not have, uh, it would be very hard for friendships to come come by because you're seen as unclean. You're religiously unclean. And so you can't go into the temple. You can't worship with other people. If you were to be near him or touch him, you would be unclean. You'd have to go through a process. No rabbi would get close to him. And, And so both physically and spiritually, you're just an outcast. In every way that matters in society, you're on the edges And nobody would typically give you the time of day. Not only that, but your illness would often be and most often be looked at as something or of a reason of your own sin or maybe the sin of your parents. Uh, And so the sin of someone that's very close to you has obviously given you something. God is punishing you because of something you have done or something someone close to you has done in your line. And it was always seen in that manner. Now, yes, sometimes we suffer for our own sinful decisions, but that's not always the case. And with this man, this is something that would have been seen that he would have done. But you're blind because of something you've done, or you're blind because of something that your parents done. And this is often even what the disciples thought. Back in uh, John chapter 9, verse 1, we see another blind man from birth come up to Jesus, and they ask Jesus with this blind man in his presence, is this man blind because of his sin, or is he blind because of his parents' sin? 
So this is something the disciples think. This is something the general population, uh, the Jewish population would think that this person has done something and God has punished them. And this is what has taken place in their life. So you are unclean. You are blemished. You can't attend synagogue. You don't have friends and family. You are most likely disowned. But... In this man's case, there's a group of people, I think we could call them friends if they're willing to do this, that know who Jesus is and what he is able to do. And so they take this man and they bring him to Jesus. And I want to I point this out because this man would be seen as unclean. He would make you unclean. It's believed commonly that because of his own doing, this is his punishment. But yet, this group of people who have no names know who Jesus is. They know the truth of what he is able to do. And they are willing to overlook and look beyond the cultural norm, the untruth that they live in, and bring this man to the truth that he might be healed. And I want us to catch that because I think that's a challenge for each of us in the culture that we live in and the world that we live in today. We need to be a people that look beyond personal desire, that look beyond public opinion and seek to believe and understand and know and find ourselves in the truth. It was Nietzsche that said this, the strength of a person's spirit or character is the measure by how much truth they can tolerate. Or more precisely, to what extent they need to have it diluted, disguised, sweetened, muted, or falsified. And certainly today, and and it's no different, our hearts are unchanging, our circumstances have changed, the culture has changed, the world has changed, our hearts are the same. We will have a tendency to, to want to find ourselves in the things of the world because this is the normal way to do things, the normal way to believe things. This is, the, this is the pressure that we find ourselves in, and we need to be a people who seek truth. The character of a person is defined by how much truth they can handle and what they do with it. Truth is the most important and most worth pursuing thing. It's worth determining and swimming upstream to hold on to. It's worth sacrificing for because it alone brings liberty. It alone sets us free from the lie that we live in of the pursuit of finding satisfaction and salvation in the things of the world when it can only be found in the God who created us. And so we need people in our lives that love us enough to, in love, point us towards the truth in everything in our lives. This is what we do in gospel communities here is to to seek to love and show compassion and to care and to accept and receive every single person, but desire for them to understand truth and walk in that truth in deeper and deeper ways so that they can walk more and more into the freedom that God has created them to experience. Each of us needs people in our lives that love us enough to point us to the truth. And we need to be people in other people's lives who love them enough to reveal the truth, live the truth, and show them the freedom that they can have in Christ. Listen, this is the pattern that God shows us all throughout the gospel of Mark. 
friends bring a crippled man to Jesus. A dad comes on behalf of his daughter. A mother begs for her daughter. Friends bring bring a blind man to Jesus to be healed. Last week, we saw that God tells us that his mission is to start where you are, to to pursue his mission, is to look where you are and have compassion on everyone, see everyone through the lens of who you are in Jesus and his truth, to use what you have, that he always provides everything that you need to do what he is calling you to do, to reveal his kingdom, and then he will do what only he can do. Here he uses this pattern of bring people to him, reveal people to people who Jesus is, beg Jesus on their behalf, and he will bring saving power. He will be the one who heals and guides and sends. This is the truest purpose that we have in life, to know truth and to reveal that truth in everything that we are, where we live and where we work and where we play. So that they don't have to uh, understand or think that they need to have something required of them or that they have to live in this acceptable way that, that anyone can have salvation in Christ, that there is no uncleanliness that we cannot be set free from, that Jesus moves in powerful ways and brings salvation and healing into our very souls at the deepest level. And he is always in control and he is always working and he is always moving. And so these friends bring this person to Jesus, and they want Jesus to touch him. And and the touching here is important. It's not that Jesus needs to touch to heal. We've already discussed that. But, But the touching here does reveal something to us that I think is really important. Because we do live in a world where the dirty dirties everything that it touches. And it doesn't really work the other way. If something is dirty and it gets on something clean, then the thing that was clean becomes, to some extent, dirty. And the pursuit of life, the great pursuit of life, is to find what might make us clean. Because every single one of us understands that we fall short, that we're not who we want to be. We can't even live up to the standards we create for ourselves. And all of us want to be better than we are. And the great pursuit of life is what would make us who are unclean clean. What can actually touch us and not become dirty but produce holiness and cleanliness and satisfaction in us. And this is what Jesus does. And so they bring him to Jesus and they want him to touch him. And Jesus doesn't just touch him. Look back at the story. It's funny to me that when we come to God and we just want to touch, sometimes we just want to touch, don't we? Like we just, we've had a long week, we've had a hard week and and we just want a touch from God's word. We just want him to get us through another day. We just want a little bit of, of God to kind of give us a little bit of a pep talk so that we can kind of feel good about who we are again and, and get through the rest of the week. But every time we come to God just for a touch, he does way more. And it usually is a whole lot more uncomfortable. Like we want him just to touch us because it's comfortable. It's like, uh, you know, bring healing to me and bring satisfaction to me and bring joy to me. Just, just give me the things that I want. Touch me and give me what I want. But Jesus always touches us and gives us what we need. And it's often uncomfortable, but it's always transforming. If you really want salvation and you really want a touch from Jesus, it's not just about being healed. It's about being transformed. 
And discipleship, growing in Christ, it, it always happens in tension. It's not comfortable. So when this man asks for a touch, or these friends ask for a touch, they just want the healing, but Jesus is going to do far more, and it's going to be far better, but it is going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to lead them to places they have never been, and to understand things they've never understood, and to experience things they've never experienced. This is what every single one of us longs for, but we don't understand until God opens our eyes to see it. And so Jesus doesn't just touch the man. He takes him by the hand and he leads them. Why? Jesus is not just a savior. He's Lord. And we're going to see something in this just a minute that, that really begins to bring out this idea of Jesus is not just the Savior that we want. He's not just going to touch and heal. He's actually the Lord. He takes us by the hand and he leads us. He leads us in the way that we are to live and who we are to be and the identity we are created to have, the purpose and the mission that we long for but don't have eyes for. And, and just imagine just for a minute Jesus leading this man. This man's whole life, he has been searching in the dark for things that he cannot find, for healing. He's been searching around the city, and Jesus is going to bring this man outside of the city. This certainly begins to foreshadow that Jesus would go outside of the city for us and that he would hang on a cross to pay the penalty of our sins so that we might have our spiritual blindness taken away. That we might be forgiven of our sin. That we might be made new through his resurrection. But imagine this man, his whole life has been seeking life in the city. Stumbling around, looking for things that he cannot find. And, and you can begin to see yourself in this. Can you not? That we're, that we're stumbling around in the world. We're grabbing on to things that, that look shiny or look like they might satisfy. Or that, that might help us build the kingdom that we really need to become who we really long to be. And we're just searching and we're just seeking. And, and nothing is actually satisfying and producing. We're just looking for things in a world where it feels like what we're looking for doesn't exist. What we desire cannot be found. And here comes Jesus, the creator, the healer, the restorer, and he takes this man's hand who's been seeking in the world his entire life what he cannot find, and he leads him outside of the city to learn and experience and understand what he could not find in the world. And just imagine Jesus helping this man walk outside of the city. It gives us some insight into how the God of the universe desires relationship with us. Not just to give a healing touch and for us to just worship him from afar, but to know him. That he actually guides us, that he actually leads us in the life that we're created to live. And you can imagine him taking this blind man and walking him outside of the city. And the terrain there is very hilly, it's very rocky. This man likely does not go outside of the city. And so Jesus is holding his hand, maybe holding him up when he stumbles, maybe, maybe even talking to him and saying, hey, watch out for that rock right there. Hey, there's a step that's coming up. One more step, one more step, one more step. Jesus is guiding him with his voice. He's helping him with his hand. And this begins to reveal to us the way that God is Lord of us. 
that not only does he heal, but he guides us with his voice, with his word, and he guides us with his wisdom and his spirit. He speaks to us. He leads us. He calls us into what he has called us to be and to do. And we see this in how he, he walks with this blind man out of the city. We live in a dark and lonely, confused world. And the Bible tells us that every single one of us is spiritually blind. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the disciples, the world all around us, the governmental leaders. We've seen this all through the book of Mark. See, Scripture has a unique viewpoint on humanity. It's that none of us get it. All of us are blind, and we're all seeking what we can only find in God in a thousand different ways. But we are blind, and we are seeking the exact thing that we need in a world where it cannot be found, and we cannot see it. But he came into the world for us so that we might hear his voice and his truth, that we might believe what is true, that we might find salvation in what is true, and that we might walk in his goodness. See, otherwise this does not exist. This is the only place that it is. And Jesus begins to reveal this to us and to the disciples who are watching all of this take place and the people who are following him. He lends his voice. He guides us. He desires relationship with us. There's nothing that he cannot save from. There's nothing that he cannot do. And Jesus stops as he gets him outside of the city. He does another thing that we would not expect him to do. It says that he spits on the man's eyes. We talked several weeks ago about spit and what that means. And and in this culture, it was often seen to have um, some healing um, abilities in it. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to do this. So this wasn't some sort of crazy thing that Jesus was doing. It probably was comforting the man. He probably thought to himself, here comes this powerful man's saliva. I'm going to be healed. It probably comforted him. But I guarantee you what happened next he did not expect. Because Jesus asks, what do you see? And he goes, I I mean, I see something. I'm not blind anymore. There's something happening. I see something. It's kind of blurry. Like it, it sort of looks like people walking around like trees. And as we said, this would have to be confusing to him because everything in him would want to say, I can see. Like, Jesus healed me. I came to him. And certainly, he has more vision than he had before. Jesus just asked this question. And so he could have just said, yeah, I can see. Like, this is better than it was before. But he's honest with Jesus. And that honesty has to bring confusion to him and the disciples and his friends. What do you mean we've never heard of this type of thing happening And listen, I think that this shows us multiple things, one of which is that we always, when we come to God, expect instant gratification. We always expect him to do the exact thing we want him to do in the way that we think would be right for him to do it. We think that we see so clearly what is right. But all of us are in need of his hand. All of us are more blind than we believe that we are. And if God doesn't do what he does here, if he does not open our eyes, then we do not see. 
And so often we just expect God to move in the way that we see and think that he should through this blurry lens that we have and this finite ability to see everything that he sees in full. And when he doesn't, then we are extremely tempted to question God. And I'm not talking about doubting things. Doubt, we've talked about so often here, can be a really good thing. It's like a poised foot that could cause us to lean in and discover more truth or to step away from the truth that we're seeking. But it might cause us to question. It might weaken our faith. It might cause us to walk away. It might cause us to even deny or curse God. But God is always working in a thousand different ways, even if we don't see it. And he's always doing what is best. And he cares about the soul at the deepest level. Because here's the crazy thing. And, and yes, sometimes does, God does heal us in, in kind of intermediate steps. Or sometimes it doesn't go all the way. I, I've experienced, there was a pastor friend of ours that, that several months ago had a, a severe heart attack while he was running. He fell uh, because of the heart attack. And he was laying there on the ground for we don't know how long before he was found. It was, he was rushed to the hospital. It was believed that he was going to pass away. The whole family was just getting ready, everything in order for him to pass away. Machines were keeping him alive. And miraculously, he came to. Miraculously. Nobody could explain it, not even the doctors outside of this was a miraculous thing. But then he had to learn all of these things over again that he used to know how to do, and he's still in process of that. God healed him in this miraculous way, but not fully. Sometimes God works like that to reveal things to us, for us to understand things. He's always working to heal the soul, to strengthen the soul. It's far more important than the physicality in the way that he heals. Because in the grand scheme of things, every physical healing is a partial healing. We're still going to die. Life is still going to come to an end. And the soul is eternal. And what God does in us is far more important than what he does physically. The spiritual is what he is pursuing. And he wants us to have spiritual sight. To have true healing. To understand who we truly are. To see him clearly and walk with him in all things fully devoted to him. And if you remember over the last several chapters, this has been the big question for the disciples. The disciples are seeing Jesus do all of these things. And Jesus is about to die and and rise and ascend back into heaven and send out the disciples to take his good news to the nations. And they still don't have clear sight on who he actually is and what he's actually come to do and what they're supposed to be doing when he goes. He even asked them at the end of last week, are your hearts hardened? Do you still not see? Do you not understand? Now they're following him. There's some sort of sight. They're not just denying him in complete blindness. They're not just rejecting Jesus as a whole. They're they're seeing Jesus, but throughout Jesus' walking with his disciples to this point, it's kind of like they're seeing Jesus as this great like oak tree. He's powerful, and and, and he's mighty, and and he speaks with authority, and, and there's something special about him. Maybe he's the one that we've been expecting and longing but their vision of who Jesus is is blurry. And he continues to say, do you not understand? Do you not see? Are your hearts hardened? What do I have to do for you to understand? 
This is just like the Pharisees are. They, they, in a different way, see the disciples have blurry vision of Jesus because they want the Messiah to be the Messiah they want. And they have great expectations. We see this in Peter and we'll see it in just a second of who the Messiah will be. Even when they know who Jesus is, they still don't know yet in this chapter what Jesus has come to do. How the Messiah actually saves. And the Pharisees, though, on the other hand, they're the religious people. They know about God and they understand God and they live in this structured type of world and and they pursue morality, but it's all just information. It hasn't transformed their hearts. They see God blurry. They don't understand him in the way that actually brings saving faith. So listen to me, what we began to see in this, and I need to move on really quickly, I get that, but what we see in this is that there are some who are blind to who Jesus is, they completely deny him because they cannot see the truth. But then there are some who want God to help them build the kingdom that they long for, like the disciples, and they see a little bit of Jesus, like a, like an, a mighty oak walking, but not as the one that he is. Their vision is blurry. And the others see Jesus as as this information that allows them to have the advice that they need to be a good person and to be self-righteous and to judge others and, and, and to do everything that they need to do to have salvation in and of themselves. This is the Pharisees, but they don't see the Messiah clearly. There's so often this process for us, is there not? And Jesus is revealing this process to us and, and what we need to pursue in him and what he is doing. I, I experience this all the time as people come to faith. They start out as I don't believe. They're completely blind to the truth of who Jesus is. And then they start moving in this direction of understanding. And, and they're starting to see a little bit of Jesus, but they haven't placed their faith in him. They're not allowing him to transform them as of yet. They're, they're seeing something, but it's a little bit blurry. It's not clear yet. And, and then suddenly their eyes are open to see the truth. This is often how Jesus works. And listen to me, maybe you don't see clearly today. Maybe you just want Jesus to be the Jesus that you want him to be, and you just want the touch of healing, and you have expectation because you think you see clearly what needs to happen, and instead of surrendering to him, you want him to be the Messiah that you long for him to be, and you're not surrendering to him because you want the king that you want and not the one that he is and that you need. Maybe you're just religiously pursuing good works and you just feel like I'm doing the moral thing. I'm following all the rules. And and so Jesus certainly loves me and puts me on a pedestal and he owes me something. This is often where we find ourselves. If you're completely blind this morning to truth and you are denying who he actually is, then you need a friend that will reveal the truth to you. And I hope that you will let me be that friend today. But if you're in the other two camps where you're seeing Jesus, but it just isn't clear, you just haven't surrendered, your eyes have not been opened, you're not being transformed, then we need to be like this blind man today and be honest with Jesus. See, so often we can be confronted with the truth of Jesus and we can just go, "Ah, I'm religiously good, I, I can see something. 
I'm religiously good. I'm just waiting for Jesus to do what I want him to do. I can see something. And we just walk around seeing the creator God in this blurry way that's not satisfying, that doesn't make us whole, that doesn't bring us the salvation and life that we were created to experience in him. And we're okay with it. I I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's this famous preacher who said this. He, He once wondered about this text. What would have happened to the blind man if he just said, yeah, I can see. If he wasn't honest with Jesus and said, I see, but it's blurry. He he would never have known that Jesus is the great healer. And he might have never walked with clear sight and just gone his whole life with blurred vision. Do not do that today. Don't just continue to seek him religiously or, or to seek him as, as this grace-filled, well, whatever I do, he's just going to bless, and, and I'm just going to pursue what I want and my desires, but I'm going to sprinkle it with some Jesus. This religious activity that is so often what we find in the church today is blurry vision, and it doesn't save But this man is honest, and we see that Jesus actually touches him and heals him, and he sees everything clearly. Maybe you need to be honest with Jesus. I'll close by just kind of wrapping up what's happening here at the end of the text, because Jesus uses this to reveal something unbelievable. He takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. They walk away. So here he guides this blind man outside of the city. Now he takes the disciples and he leads them outside of the city. And Caesarea Philippi is a very important city. It was named after Caesar and the Tetrarch of the Jewish people, Philip, of this area. And so this would remind the disciples of the ruling governments of the world, of Rome and Jewish leaders. You can also, from this city on on Mount Hermon, see the entirety of the Jordan River Valley. And so as they're overlooking the life and the cities and the, the geography that they love and they have been called to and they have grown up in, they're seeing the governmental leaders and the Jewish leaders and the place that they love and are called to. But then Caesarea Philippi was also kind of a strip mall to the gods in the first century. In the rock of the... The mountain, there was temple after temple after temple, and this was a main place of worship for the gods of the day. So you have all of the religion, all of the government um, being represented, all of the land that they see and love and are called to. And this would remind the disciples of all of these things. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Do they see clearly or is it blurry? And, and some certainly deny and then some say, oh, you're like John the Baptist. They kind of see you, but, but they're not really clear on who you actually are. And some say the prophets or Elijah. Today, some would say he's a really good teacher or, uh, or, or he's a world religious leader like Muhammad or Gandhi or, or any, like he's one of the greats. They, they kind of see that he's, he's set apart, but their vision is blurry. Then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, after eight chapters of touches, finally says, you are the Messiah. And Matthew 16 tells us that Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, for God has opened your eyes to see this. This is a truth that has come from God. He has opened the sight of the blind for you to understand. And on this truth, my church will be built. 
This is the truth that sets the captive free. This is the truth that brings sight to the blind. And now, because the disciples are able to see this truth clearly, he brings them a teaching that he has not before. He says, the Son of Man, this is a term that is found in the book of Daniel to describe one who is holy God and holy man. The Son of Man. So what he's saying is, I am God, the Messiah, who has come to set his people free, must suffer many things and be rejected and go to the cross and three days later rise again. See, this is the parable of the miracle that God is revealing. But Peter and the disciples, they still don't get who Jesus is, what he's going to do. He's the Messiah, but what is the Messiah actually going to do? Who is the Messiah? He doesn't get it still. He still sees it like the Pharisees. He still doesn't have understanding. He wants his Messiah to come. And so he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, wait, 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 wait. I have been told my whole life that the Messiah is going to come to kill, not be killed. To build this kingdom up and rise his people out of oppression. And you're saying that you have come to die? This Messiah does not fit my agenda. This Messiah is not who I believed him to be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because anything that keeps us from the path of God's calling and plan is not of him. And Jesus knows the only way for you to have salvation and love and justice to come is for me to go to the cross and defeat sin and death by rising from the grave. And then Jesus gives us, and we'll just close with this. He gives us this really popular thing that we see in the text. Verses 34 to the end. How can we actually see him? He says, to all of those gathered... If anyone would follow me, he must lay his life down. And in laying your life down, you find life. You must surrender it all. You must carry your cross. To see the light will hurt a little bit at first. Because you have to begin to understand that I have to live as though I'm not seeking my life in the things of the earth. I have to die to the one that I was and and what I was seeking, what I was pursuing. And it's worth it and it's life-giving. But to become what I desire and was created to be, I have to give up what I am. I have to lay down what I am. And it's not giving up pleasure or giving up happiness. It's actually pursuing those things. It's not laying down our dreams, but it's actually discovering that our dreams were too small. Because only in him can we find the life that we're created to have. It will cost you everything, but you gain everything in return that you could not see before. It's worth it. It's worth it. Today, if you are blind and have not seen the truth of who Jesus is, you have not placed your faith in him, I would encourage you as we close in worship to take a moment just to ask God to touch you. Ask him to give you sight. If you're a follower of Jesus and maybe you're, you're not seeing very clearly, you're not sure how the gospel truth is affecting everything in your life and, and how you're going to leave here and, and see the world through the lens of who you are in Jesus, be honest with him today. And if you see him 
and you're giving him glory in all things, then let's be sent from this place revealing the goodness of truth.